Hi, and welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. This is Dr. Liz, and this is a podcast about hypnosis, transformation, and healing. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Loretta Bruning. She is fascinating. She's an evolutionary psychologist, retired university professor, and author. And in this interview, she breaks down for us how, although we've evolved, our monkey minds are still very much operating and not always to our benefit, I will say. (laughs) She talks clearly about how to change our neural pathways, which we'll call habits for short, so that we can change our lives and get what we need and want. So let's jump in. Hi, Loretta. I'm so happy to have you here today. I have um, looked all about your website and I was just found you a fascinating guest. So I'm happy you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me. So Loretta has a, a several books that I want to get to and ask you some of your history, how you wrote them, how you came up with them and your most recent one. But I want to first start with the question around hypnosis, because that's the, the focus of the podcast. So what was your first experience with hypnosis? Um, I went to a hypnotist, and he explained to me how the brain worked. And it was so powerful. It was one of the uh, big motivators of what I've done, One of, a very big influence on me. He worked with a lot of people who tried to stop smoking. He said, imagine you're a 14-year-old boy at a party. You want to talk to a girl, but you're afraid. And someone offers you a cigarette. And you take it, and you feel great. Then you go talk to the girl. She likes you, and you're thrilled. And so your brain builds a pathway that connects the cigarette with success, let's say. Yes. And then in the future, and I, anyone who's interested in evolutionary psychology, it's reproductive success is the most powerful thing for our brain. And so then when you try not to smoke 20 years later, that pathway is already built up so big to say, this is what you do when you want to succeed. This is what you do when you want to relax you built up no other pathway. So you have to build one in order to have a different behavior. So that sounds very cognitive. This is what I got out of this hypnotist. I I didn't actually succeed. I, at the time, had a, a muscle tension problem from uh, severe injuries that I had when I was very young. Mm. So um, I have tried everything for that. And in the course of that, I've learned a lot from different methods and I've been busy putting them together. Interesting. Very interesting. So the original way he explained it was from the brain pathway. Like this yeah. is how your brain works. Fascinating. Yeah. And how old yeah. were you at the time? Uh, I would say about late 40s. <laughs> late 40s. Okay. Yeah. And when did you begin your research into brain and pathways and how, how we all work? Good question. You know, I've tried to figure that out myself. I've always been a fan of psychology. And believe it or not, I even had Psychology Today magazine images on the wall in my dorm when I was a college freshman. (laughs) (laughs) Like they have really cool art, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've always been a big consumer of psychology, you could say. 
And over the years, as I struggled with my own issues, as anyone does, I look for answers and I was not, frankly, completely satisfied with what I found. And in a way, that was good because it got me to look and look. And then as I, 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 I neared 50 and I had the opportunity to take early retirement and I was thinking about that. And by chance, I lived near a place, it's hard to say what it is, but it's like an alternative pharmacy in Berkeley, California, that offered a free hour for, of every possible bodywork technique. Wow. And you just, yeah. And you just show up and all day, every day, there'd be a different alternative. And I sat in on a lot of those. But the bottom line was while I'm doing all this, I'm also reading a mention of how brain chemicals work in animals. And that was so powerful for me. And in one book, I'd read one little study. And in another book, I read another little study. And nobody put them together. So that's what motivated me because, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, my God, this is so obvious how it all fits together. And I tried to tell people and nobody would listen. So that's why I felt like I had to write a whole book. Oh, interesting. So was that your first book? That was that's what it's mainly about. Uh, yes, yes. Every book is that what I call the mammalian operating system mm -hmm. uh, applied to, let's say, a, a different way that we have of approaching our problems. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you put all this brain chemical research together to say, hey, this is what's going on. And this is how we can change our habits. Yes, exactly. So this is what's going on. And just uh, for people who are new to this. So the brain chemicals that make us feel good and bad are inherited from earlier mammals. And mm -hmm. they have, they're not meant to be on all the time for no reason. Each one has a very specific job. And the job is so obvious when you understand the survival needs of animals. And the happy chemicals motivate you, motivate you with a good feeling that gets you to go towards something good for survival. And the unhappy chemicals warn you with a bad feeling when you see something bad for survival. So it's just like a motivating you to take a step forward or take a step back. That's basically what we're doing all the time. Okay, so then to take, let's say that step forward that we want to make changes in our life, then is it a matter of like, okay, let's see how I can activate the good chemicals? Yes, but what it takes to activate them is very specific and not that easy, which is why we notice people doing weird things to try to turn them on. <laughs> so um, how about I'll go over each one and explain what turns them on? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. So first, dopamine. Dopamine, uh, each of them actually corresponds to a chemical of abuse and sometimes if I explain that chemical then it's a little clearer I don't know other people okay. are offended by the chemical but um so I'll add that so dopamine is cocaine okay now mm -hmm. everyone can see that we're not meant to be on cocaine every minute so yes. I'm not <laughs> advocating that we should be I'm explaining that it has a job in the state of nature and it's not meant to be used for no reason. So dopamine is the good feeling, like I can get it. And your brain turns it on when you see a way to meet a survival need. And that releases your energy because your body 
makes very careful decisions about when to release your energy. So for example, if a lion is hungry, you and when if you watch nature videos, you know, sometimes by the end of the mm-hmm. hour the lion hasn't eaten for a week and you start rooting for the lion. So mm-hmm. if, <laughs> if that lion runs after everything he sees, he's going to starve to death. So he has to mm-hmm. make very careful decisions. Should I go after that? Should I go after that? Should I go after that? So we can all think of, for example, if you're looking for a romantic partner or if you're looking for a career promotion. So you make careful decisions about where to invest your energy. Or if I'm deciding, you know, do I want to write a new book? Should I write that? Should I write that? And I that you think of all the things that can go wrong. And then you say, that's it. That's the one I should go after. And that gives mm-hmm. you the good feeling of dopamine. And as long as you see evidence that the reward is closer. So you can see how our ancestors had to make careful decisions about, you know, am I going to climb this tree for that piece of fruit? Look around. Should I go after that piece of fruit or that one? And each step closer to the piece of fruit triggers more dopamine because that meets needs. So it's the unmet need and the approach that releases dopamine. Interesting. Okay. The unmet need and the approach. So you have to actually succeed at approaching. So next Uh one. um, (laughs) Or 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 else you you don't get it released, right? If you don't succeed. Or Uh or convince yourself, you know, which is why sort of promised land mythologies are um, big dopamine stimulators. Yes. Okay. So part of that process is convincing yourself as well. So when I'm thinking about hypnosis here, it's like I'm seeing it in in the context of of this as it helps someone discern what to go towards. It's a step towards that in the right direction. It's a step to help them get there so that the dopamine's released. What helps you discern what to go toward? You have your higher brain, your cortex that analyzes a lot of information, but it can't make a decision on its own. So dopamine is the emotion, the physiological spark that says, this is it. So if you've ever had that feeling where you feel positive about two things equally, like I can't decide if I want this or this, which one should I invest in? So that's the cortex, the cognitive intellectual brain. And What gets that dopamine spark? What's that final, like, okay, this is it. This is the one I feel good about. That's the the, sort of the magic of life. And the big Mm -hmm. determinant of that, alas, is old neural pathways, whatever triggered your dopamine in your past, which may be valid in this moment or not. And when I say your past, specifically, those neural pathways are most created when you're under age eight and during puberty, because that's when the brain produces a lot of myelin. And the myelinated pathways are what create the large flows. So for example, if you and I are looking at a book and we love books and we're like, you know, should I read this one or that one? But we have the expectation that I'm gonna feel good when I read a book. Whereas if we, someone else is like, if you and I are, looking at, you know, should I watch this football game or that football game? I don't have the expectation that either one is going to feel good where someone else would look at it 
perhaps with the opposite view. So that's the role of the old neural pathway. Gotcha. So this is how it's, I mean, it's one of the reasons, obviously there's a multitude of reasons, but it's one of the reasons why what you're doing as a parent is so important. Like you're shaping those neural pathways regarding what gives your child comfort, pleasure, soothing, all of that in the decisions, the choices that you're offering them, really. Yes, that's a fabulous point. And to take it even further, we have these things called mirror neurons where we perceive when others get a reward. So if you see, if you're a child and you see someone else like take a cookie and they're like, you know, when they're upset, they take a cookie and you tell your Mm -hmm. child to do something else, but they learn from what you do. And Mm -hmm. it's not just what you do, but they learn from rewards and pain. We learned with monkeys, monkeys notice when another monkey gets a reward or when other monkey gets harm. So what your family did to relieve pain and to get reward, that's what built your neural pathways. But this is also how... When you you're talking about adults that had trauma as children, they grew up in abusive families or some kind of trauma happened to them, mm-hmm. then like in my practice, sometimes people will come in and want to heal old trauma. So we work on that and we go back and we do various things to do that. And some of that is through hypnosis and some of it is not. But what you're saying is like, okay, our task there is to heal the neural pathways, to give them a different choice now, because somehow when there's trauma in their history, the neural pathways got laid down that way. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I I 99% agree with you. (laughs) So, okay. um, So So tell me the 1%. Is um, if you focus on what new neural pathway do you want and need? So as long as you're focusing on the trauma, you're not making progress. So it's Mm. like if people with trauma and they just keep focusing on their trauma, they think, oh, other people have it good, other people have it easy, which is not at all true because people grew up, let's just in the interest of time say spoiled, people who grew up spoiled, they're not doing any better. So everyone has the same challenge. (laughs) How can I face adult life with the pathways I have and the solution is always what new pathway would I like to build and how can I invest my energy in the behaviors that will build that pathway so for example if I felt that um like it in my case nobody ever gave me a pat on the back you know I got Mm -hmm. beaten on the back but um Mm -hmm. so I would like to get a pat on the back so I could give it to myself and a person might notice that they're not giving it to themselves. And so they can decide to build a new pathway that says, you know, I'm going to do five minutes of an activity that I struggle with, and then I'm going to appreciate myself for doing that. And when I say appreciate, I'm, it has to be real appreciation. If your version of appreciation is, I could have done it better, then you're not, so you have to actually appreciate yourself and then do another five minutes. And if that's hard, do one minute of a difficult task and then appreciate yourself. And the pathway absolutely will build if you can't fail. Fascinating. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. 
So the focus there is, all right, let's build new pathways so that you're not relying on the old ones. I mean, the old ones basically disappear when you start to build the new ones, oh, correct? Oh, no, that's a really good question. No. They don't disappear. You could really say they almost never disappear. You know, you hear about like the recovering alcoholic that says, you know, even after 30 years of sobriety, blah, blah, blah. So here's, uh-huh. so the, the, the key is in the choice moment that you still have the old pathway there, but in that moment of choice, you find it easier and easier to go into the new pathway rather than the old one. So that's the difficult oh. part. So in order to explain that choice moment, which is so hard, I have a few answers. So one is I, I did create a new video, and I talk a lot about the choice moment in the later episodes. Um, we could give out the URL for that. Um, Definitely. Another way of thinking about that choice moment is if you imagine the Titanic is sailing in one direction and you're trying to steer it so it turns in a different direction. So it takes a huge amount of energy to change the direction of a huge ship. And even when you succeed, you don't actually see the change for a few minutes or even with a big ship for, you know, for an hour. So the way to understand this is that the electricity in your brain is always being stimulated by what you take in through your senses. And of course, the world stimulates more detail than you could possibly process. So your whole brain is designed to filter it down to what's important. And your old neural pathways do that until you build new ones. So you have power to, uh, the electricity in your brain flows like water in a storm. It flows into whatever channels are there. And the bigger the channels, the more likely your electricity is going to flow into that. Now, you are not a victim of your old pathways because you have willpower. But it's so hard to redirect your electricity that you can only do it for one thing at a time. So you have to stop doing other things and completely focus on this new choice. So I'll give you a really simplified example of this. I moved to a new home at one point, and my automatic response was to turn off the road at the exit for my old home. And Mm -hmm. I was teaching, and so I was going home at night at 10 o'clock. And if I got off at the exit for my old home, then I would be having to, you know, make a terrible correction in a bad neighborhood at 10 o'clock at night, and I was exhausted. So how can I get myself to resist that old turn and to stay on the freeway, like for one exit longer to go to my new home? And so what I had to do was to focus my energy, not listen to my audio book, and to build the new habit of not getting off at the old exit. What I learned to do was not to be in the turning lane (laughs) so so that I was not even tempted when the new exit came up. So anything that you could do that changes in, you know, when people in the sobriety movement call it triggers, you know. All the reminders of that old pathway, if you could change them in any way, you know, sensory ways, so that you could give yourself more uh, power 
to choose that new pathway in that moment. And that new pathway will build and it will get easier and easier, but the old pathway will still be there to tempt you. Got you. So that is why when people often enter recovery, it's like the recommendation is you have to focus so much on keeping sobriety at that moment. Yes. Right? Like Yes, exactly. Avoiding the triggers, like changing all of your patterns yes. so that the triggers are not there as much as possible. Yes. Yes. Because you're you're basically steering your ship into a different channel. Exactly. So that also makes sense of why like years down the road, let's say someone who does have five, ten, fifteen years of sobriety, they're like, Okay, I am way over here on the other side of the world to avoid going back to my original channel, right? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and it feels good over here, but I know the original channel is still there. That's why I'm going to live over here as much as possible with all these new pathways. Yes, exactly, exactly. And just to, to get down to what the channels are, I, I mean, we could talk about it physiologically, but we could just say it's coping skills. So we all mm-hmm. need coping skills because life is hard. And I'm very much against this current idea that something is wrong with the world and something has gone wrong or my parents messed up, our society messed up, you know, our schools messed up. It's not messed up. Life is hard. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, as soon as you deal with one challenge, your brain focuses on the next challenge. And mm-hmm. the more you get past your immediate survival needs. People have their biological clock, they're worried about children, they're meeting immediate needs. It's always been that way. And then when you get to my age, I you know, I don't have like the immediate survival things, but then I have to confront the reality of my mortality. So everything is hard. And so we all have the coping skills that we learn when we were young, plus the toolbox that we choose to build for ourselves. Mm. So you have your original coping skills that you learn when you're a little child, let's say, right? You're saying under eight and definitely during puberty, you're really learning coping skills. And I have kids right in that age range, 11 and 15 right now. So I'm trying to like very actively teach them coping. Good. You have those, but then... You learn different ones throughout your life, depending on what you're going through, really. Yes, yes. So how do you learn coping skills throughout your life? So the neural pathways are created in two ways, repetition and emotion. So emotion means anything that triggers either a happy chemical or an unhappy chemical builds a neural pathway. If something happens to me and I'm like, wow, this is fabulous, that works. But Mm -hmm. in adult life, You know, it doesn't happen like that much because nothing happens that easily. And then if something terrible happens, that easily builds a pathway that says, oh, my God, that's awful. I'm never going to do that again. So that's Mm -hmm. one way of building pathways. But if you rely on that, then you the only things that trigger huge pathways, you know, apart from random chance is like eating a whole pizza, you know, all that. (laughs) (laughs) All the bad things, because that's why they trigger those chemicals. So that's why repetition is such a valuable way of building a new pathway, because it's an alternative to emotion. Now, hypnosis, Mm -hmm. let me, what I think is the value of that is, I have just made an artificial distinction between 
a big pathway and no pathway at all. But I think hypnosis can help a person steer their electricity into some smallish pathways that are not well developed. Like maybe you have that coping skill, but it's hard for you to access and hypnosis can help you do that. Mm -hmm. Like I see it happen in my practice. That's often why as hypnotherapists, we say, okay, go home if, if it's appropriate. And listen to this file, like every night, listen to it while you fall asleep, because it's building new neural pathways. Absolutely, exactly. And making it easier for your electricity to flow without as much effort. And once your electricity flows, then you feel normal. And that's the whole point. When your electricity is flowing through a well-developed pathway, we perceive that as, I know what's going on, I'm safe, this is my normal. Even when oh. your old normal is not that good, you know. Uh huh. Yeah, but that's also to go back to addiction. Some that's also how people start to feel like that lifestyle is normal. Exactly, is because that's that's their regular pathway that's going on. Right. Or even a person who chooses an abusive relationship and that feels mm-hmm. like they're normal. Hmm. That feels normal to them, and, and sometimes. Now, sometimes, often, it takes a friend, a professional, a big, huge incident to point out to them, that's not normal. Like, what's happening is not normal. You shouldn't be living that way. However, but they have no other neural pathways because they didn't build them. So they Mm -hmm. keep having the urge to go back to that old normal because when they try something different, it doesn't feel normal. And you have the power to trust in your new flow, even though it doesn't feel effortless. And what is that new flow going toward? It's a sense of safety that you can um, augment with coping skills. Fascinating. It's a great explanation. I know you have a book, which one of your, you have several books. So which one of your books do you lay this out in and to help people understand better how to develop the new coping skills, how their brain is working? So uh, the simple introduction for a person who wants to rewire themselves, it's called Habits of a Happy Brain. Retrain your brain to boost your dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. Habits of a Happy Brain. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. And um, I have a website with lots and lots of information about my methods. It's innermammalinstitute.org. And uh, innermammalinstitute.org. And for people who don't love to read, I created a video series. It's at youhavepoweroveryourbrain.com. Oh, fascinating. I'm going to put both of those in the show notes as well as the book. And I just want to say to the listeners, like the Inner Mammal Institute, I've looked at that one a lot, and it has so much information. It is really, really good. Thank you. Go over there and and take a look at it. Thanks so much. I want to go back to one of the statements you made where you said when people get stuck in indecision. Yes. That was a huge problem for me at a certain point in my life. So it's totally self-motivated here. But I also find that's what clients come in to me with. It's like, I don't know what to do here. I am stuck. So can you talk about that some in the process of getting unstuck? Yes, good. So first, I'll tell you a funny study because we could all relate to it. There was a guy who had a connection severed between his cortex and his emotional brain. 
he's having follow-up doctor visits. It wasn't severed, you know, it was some, he had some disease or something. So Mm -hmm. he has his appointment with his doctor. And when the, when the visit is over, the doctor said, when would you like to make the next appointment? And he offers him three choices. And the man could not decide which of those choices he wanted. And he debated. And the doctor was learning from this. So the doctor gave him all the time he wanted. And the man debated between the different times for a half hour. And his brain was perfectly skilled at seeing the pros and cons of each of those times, but could not choose any of them. And so it's so useful because so many self-help books are like as if your intellectual brain is good and your emotional brain is bad. And that's just a wrong way to see it. And we need our intellect, we need our emotional brain in order to say, yes, this is what I want to do. This is what's good for me. There's no such thing as saying, you know, the emotions are bad and your detail brain is all good. They have to work together. So Mm -hmm. what is the good of the choice? It's dopamine that says, this is good for me. This is going to work out. But if your life experience is like, well, nothing has worked out for me. When I do this, it goes bad. When I do that, it goes bad. So it's the expectation of reward that turns on your dopamine. And if you have trouble accessing that at a particular point in life, because your old expectations haven't worked, you have to build up new expectations. And one exercise that I just recommend for that is take something that you feel stuck with and break it down to tiny chunks. So what we would use is um, either the mess on my desk or the mess in my garage or the mess in my closet. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna work on that for five minutes. At the end of those five minutes, I'm going to celebrate. So rather than looking at the whole mountain of mess at once, you're going to get to the point where you're going to work on your mess for five minutes and feel good about it. And that Mm -hmm. builds the circuit that says, wow, I can tackle this in small increments and enjoy it. Oh, okay. So you're saying like, let's say it's a big decision that someone's trying to make that's more theoretical, right? But they know it's going to change their whole life. You're saying get concrete with it, like practice making these small decisions, quote unquote, like practice breaking it down concretely, like organizing something or doing a task that you can feel like, okay, I did this and this feels really good. I made the decision. I did it. I completed five minutes of it. And then that'll train the brain some about how to make that bigger decision. It'll train your brain to expect to succeed, okay? Ah, so you will uh-huh. expect a reward. You will say, I can do it, I, you know, whatever that is. Now, the reason you're having trouble making the decision, probably you have lots of pros and cons for all of the options, and you're very aware of them. So none of them is boiling down to, I expect this to work. And probably you have very good reason. Probably you know that once you choose X or Y, it's still going to be a hard road. You're still going to have a lot of investment to make in that road and a lot of risk of failure. So bottom line is to sort of train your expectations that once you get started on this hard road that you're going to be able to make it work. Okay, gotcha. 
So what happens when someone makes that decision based on pain? Like this is so painful that I have to stop it. Like, is that a different process than someone saying, okay, I've decided to make this decision because even though I don't know if everything's going to work out, I, I believe in some small way it's going to be better. Yeah, that's a really good question. So let's talk about the whole pain thing. And by the way, I go into some of that in the first book and more in the second book, which is The Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Changing Your Brain Chemistry. Okay. So um, that the unhappy chemical is cortisol. Cortisol is um, in everyday life often referred to as the stress chemical, but in the state of nature, it's very um, useful to understand how it works in animals. So your brain evolved to wire you to avoid pain because that promotes survival. And avoiding pain is a higher priority than getting reward because an animal can always survive the loss of one meal more than it can survive getting bitten by a lion. So if you have a choice between, I'm hungry, I want to eat, but I smell a lion, if you run, you're more likely to survive. So that's why we prioritize avoiding pain, avoiding harm. So if you are in physical pain, that's a big surge of cortisol. But if you Mm -hmm. anticipate pain, like, oh, if you keep this up, you're going to be in big trouble, that's little bits of cortisol. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And how does your brain decide what's going to be in big trouble? It's just your past pain. Now, your brain confuses social pain and physical pain because in your early experience, they're the same thing. So, for example, when you're a child, hunger is pain. So a child learns that social contact relieves my hunger. So the risk of losing social contact is a risk of pain. And that's how we get wired up, you know, in our earliest weeks of life. Okay, that is fascinating. Thank you. Sure. We're going to wrap up here. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your perspective. And I've definitely learned today a whole lot more than I knew about the brain. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I have to admit that neurobiology is not my favorite reading. Like really, it is something that I make myself do from time to time, but clearly not enough dopamine is being released, right? (laughs) For me to do it on a regular basis. But I found that she broke it down so nicely, like so clearly for all of us to understand that I I really found it a pleasure to listen to her. So that is definitely a change, definitely a, a new neural pathway being built there, right? I was struck deeply by two things. One, as a parent, how important it is that we teach coping skills and that we're laying down these neural pathways that are that are going to affect our children forever, right? Like scary on the one hand, absolutely. Let's try not to think about that minute by minute, but important on the other hand, like overall, yes, let's make conscious decisions as parents. Let's parent consciously so that we can give our children a good head start in life. The other thing that affected me deeply was the information about addiction and how important those pathways are for recovery and how to stay in recovery and how to strengthen those, how to steer your ship across the world and stay over there, 
right? Like that's really important stuff. And the third thing was how hypnosis affects neural pathways. Like I had never quite thought about it in that way. So that really helped me understand what hypnosis is doing in the actual brain to the brain structures. Fascinating. All right, people. I'm going to sign off for this week. Remember, there's free hypnosis files over at my website, or there's also downloads over there to give yourself like a head start on changing those neural pathways, right? So go ahead and take a look at them over there and see if one of them can be helpful for your life. All right. I will talk to you soon, people. Peace. Peace.